3: Welcome to Streets Ahead, a podcast dedicated to active travel, livable streets and people-focused urban design. I'm Laura Laker.
0: I'm Adam Tranter.
1: And I'm Ned Bolting and welcome to this, our seventh episode.
3: So this week, we're talking about school streets and play streets, which are both simple measures to open streets up for people. And they do that by restricting movement of through traffic to walking, cycling and vehicles that belong to residents only. Now, school streets apply outside schools are dropping off and picking up times, whereas play streets are installed at regular intervals along residential streets. So children can play outside and residents can use the street space that's normally reserved for through traffic. the great thing about these is they can act as a test ground for wider low traffic neighbourhoods by helping people see their streets without motor traffic. And the government recently told councils, as part of the emergency COVID response, to make space for walking and cycling, including the use of school streets. So, what do we think, everyone? What 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 did we do when we were kids? Did we play out on the streets?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I did. Um. Uh. Funny enough, I used to. I used to. I wasn't very good at kind of a. Uh, all hand-eye coordination, you know, anything that involved technique <laughs> to, to any great extent. Um, we had a little backyard where I grew up in Bedford and um, occasionally I used to kick a football around in there. But most of the time, actually, I used to, I used to play on the streets if by playing on the streets means uh, I used to ride around on my bike. And that's what I did. And actually it blows my mind to think how much of my childhood I spent in a world of my own uh just drifting around Bedford playing this kind of imaginary game to myself, which I used to do hour after hour after hour. Had this kind of internal monologue. And uh so by yeah, playing on the streets, that that it just felt it was never in question when I was growing up. It was all right, it wasn't particularly busy, it wasn't London or anything, but there were cars, you know, I didn't grow up in the nineteen twenties. Um uh and uh but it never uh, as far as I remember there was never an issue about, you know, ooh I'm not sure you should be doing that or, you know, so at the risk of sounding like a kind of dewy-eyed nostalgist, things were better back then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Nora, this just sounds just sounds like, uh, well, uh, sorry, I've cut right over Adam. Adam, what about your childhood where, you know, that was only about two years ago, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. About About three years ago. Um, I, uh, I, um, I had colour colour television, Ned, when I was growing up. Um, and the um, <laughs> the the sorry. um, the childhood, um, the childhood I had was was um was, uh, good, and it was based, you know, around playing outside and playing on my bike, like like yours, Ned. I think, um, I still had, you know restrictions that were, were kind of, um, gradually reduced as I got older, but I lived in a cul-de-sac. So, you know, the nature of that was like, I knew my, knew my neighbors and, and, you know, most people wouldn't kind of speed through the cul-de-sac. So had that as kind of safe space and then gradually kind of getting to like, I think like 10 years old, 11 year olds, gradually would be able to go further outside of my street on my bike, um, with, with my friends. And I think, you know, that's, um, that's, uh, that was, that was good. And, and I think that was really, really important for my love of, of cycling and, and, and everything else that goes with it. Um, my, my kids, are, I've got twin boys who are six. Um, and you know, I, I, um, can't envisage, you know, a world where I would let them do the same things and, and, you know, there's not a massive difference there. And I can't, I can't put my finger on you know exactly why not I think there's this kind of just general feeling that it's something that you can't do as much and I'm sure the data will back it up that you know kids nowadays are playing outside on their own uh, a lot less um than they they were so yeah my my childhood was great I would love to pass that on to my you know the same things that I experienced to my to my own children Um, and, uh, yeah, that's why I'm really interested about this whole topic of, of school streets and play streets and things like that. I
1: I have, I have noticed that, um, certain things during lockdown have returned that were, you know, that, that seem to be in the way that children behave on the street I live in. Um, um, two things actually. One is, uh, pavement spaces being reclaimed as a, as a kind of hanging out space you know, you can, wave, you can wave, you can't go up close to your friends from the street, but at least you can hang out in front of your house and wave at them and shout abuse at them and stuff and just have a bit of fun with them. And I've also noticed that chalk has made a resurgence and that, uh, you know, even the streets actually, not, let alone the pavements are being chalked up with hopscotch uh, uh, grids and big rainbows and messages of support um and sometimes as as I say, it kind of falls off the pavement onto the actual road because traffic frequency, although it 's built up over the last couple of weeks has been so has been so low and another thing that relates directly to what Adam and I were just saying um is that uh you know that the numbers of families. Collectively, as 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 a, as a unit, rediscovering cycling and getting out on their bikes with quite young kids, um, has been great. But also another facet of that is because the pavement space is quite congested and social distancing is quite awkward. Um, whereas with the quite young kids in London, you often used to see them always riding on the pavement, which I always thought was like, oh, I kind of get why you're doing it, but I kind of wish you wouldn't, because um, teach them how to. If you if you really want to teach them how to ride, they've got to. They've got to learn from an early age how to deal with the road, um, but you're actually seeing that. So families of very young kids are riding. Uh, Laura, I don't know if you've seen this as well. They're riding on the road in ways that um, they wouldn't have been doing before lockdown and the reduced traffic levels. And I take that as another positive side effect.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I, yeah, I've been seeing that in my area as well. Well, yeah, wherever I go, wherever I go in London. Um, well, for me, I um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, so uh, playing on the street meant playing on a basically a sixty mile an hour road. Um, but we were surrounded on three sides by forest. Our nearest neighbour was a sawmill, and then across two fields there was a there was a farm. So um, yeah, it was quite a different experience from your two experiences. But I was just looking on a map actually because um, we were talking beforehand about distances to school and my. Journey to school would have been eight one point eight miles, but it was along those country lanes, and so I was I was always desperate to ride to school, but we couldn't because it was like the road was far too dangerous. So yeah, most of my childhood, I was running around outdoors, running up and down the field, uh, running in the forest, and uh, getting generally muddy. So it's pretty cool. We didn't actually have TV. We, well, we, we did have TV, but we couldn't get a signal because we we're at the bottom of a big hill. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and Laura, without without trying to make. Uh, a a psychological assessment of 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 your childhood and your adulthood now but you started <laughs> um, to you started university by driving very short distances right so yeah. do you think there was part of your childhood of not being able to travel short distances by bikes that crept into the back of your mind driving to, to university as well.
3: It's funny actually because um growing up in Somerset you basically have to learn to drive or you otherwise you're reliant on the bus that goes once an hour um before I learned to drive I used to hitchhike uh which is probably quite dangerous I ended up hitchhiking all over the place uh and yeah you get to know the locals but um yeah until until you learn to drive you're kind of totally at the at the mercy of the public transport or or whoever will pick you up whoever they may be so um I think that just kind of carried on um so cycling short distances just was never a thing for me we used to ride in the forest uh with with my dad and and then, yeah, that was, that was kind of it. Riding on roads wasn't
1: really a thing. Yeah. It's funny. I think within the cycling community, something I I quite often butt up against actually is um, because there are so many different expressions of cycling and different ways in which people apply it to their lives, whether it's purely leisure or whether it's kind of an everyday pursuit or whether it's sport or what, you know, and, and then you get this differentiation between road bikes and mountain bikes and hybrids and, you know, whatever, sit up and beg Dutch bikes. So it's so many different ways of using it. I often often hear when you engage online in sort of debates about, as I occasionally do about, about cyclists and their behaviour, you often get car drivers who are perhaps taking a, um, a slightly less accommodating view. Um, they will often say, I ride, you know, "I I ride I ride a bike. And actually when you drill down on that, they do. But what they often mean is, they ride mountain bikes on on, on um, trails that are designed for riding a bike in the woods, you know, uh, which is which is great and it's a hugely wonderful pursuit. But it's um very very far removed from the, the you know the, what we're trying to get at, where a bike becomes a tool, becomes a solution, you know. And I, I think that's often a bit of a misunderstanding amongst the people who haven't stopped and thought about it. You know, they they think all cycling is the same, whereas it really really isn't. Mm
0: um we were doing some research for for work um this week on on google shopping trends and i can tell you that car based uh, bike racks uh, are up 350% year on year um for for sales uh through google shopping um and i see this when i'm out riding and i don't want to get on too much of a tangent but you know seeing people driving to places to then go and ride their their, their bike is definitely uh, something that happens uh, in in uh, in in Britain, and um, I think you know the data I'm just looking at now that that really reaffirms what we've been saying uh, as children is um, National Trust did some research in 2018 showing that um, children were playing outside for just over four hours a week, um, and then their parents said that they used to. Play out on average eight point two hours a week, and and you know that was just recently. So if you probably take a generation or two more, that will get further and further um, uh, exacerbated. Um, But it looks like um, you know the government uh, in here uh, in England are starting to see school school streets as a as a policy and as as an option that that could change things i think we've noticed uh, we've all noticed a change in the way that the government is talking about active travel um and school streets uh school streets is definitely part of that so i guess laura i i you know i don't have any school streets near me in fact there's none in my county at all um i wonder what the school street world looks like uh, are there that many of them uh, how long have they been going
3: yeah there's there are actually quite a few around the country um I think that I think there's around 120 across Uh, the UK. And I think something like 80 of those are in London. I think that's right. And, um, yeah, yeah, so
0: 32,770 schools in, in the UK though.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're, they're definitely a minority and it's a new thing. There is actually one just up the road from me in Newham. Um, that's very recent and, um, Yeah, as you say, it's starting to become seen as a way of helping people to travel other than by car and obviously people having to avoid public transport now. And the school run is, um, I don't have kids, but I know from um, other people telling me that the school run is absolute chaos for a lot of people outside a lot of schools. And it's that it's that point outside of the school itself where everyone's rushing in to drop off their kids. Everyone's trying to get to work afterwards. They're all in a hurry. My- Michael McIntyre, have you ever seen his sketch about getting mm. the kids out the door? Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm imagining. So you've just had this nightmare of getting the children out the door. You're just like desperately trying to get to work. And then, yeah, and then you're at the school gates and there's like loads of people. It's total chaos. You're like, people are pulling up on the pavements. Everyone's like dodging. It's super dangerous. People are idling. It's just a really stressful way of starting your day. And so, by sort of removing that situation outside of the school gates getting to people to park further away or think well if i can't park outside the school then maybe i'll just like walk or cycle or scoot with the kids um and so it's just getting people to think about that school run in a different way
1: so what sorry laura what what are they what are school streets i mean is that infrastructure yeah, we, haven't really is that, we haven't really explained that yet have, have we, we? some
3: magical thing <laughs> Let's the start magical at the thing beginning. okay it just happens the the, the school school street ferry comes down so what happens is um 45 minutes uh, twice a day at school dropping off time and school picking up time their road is closed to three traffic other than people walking and cycling and scooting and residents can still get in and out so either there's like a camera there they know the number plates of people who live there and they're permitted through or they have physical barriers and so it's just about removing that chaos from outside the school gates twice a day it's very simple and either the um the school caretaker removes the barriers or you know if there are barriers or yeah you just rely on cameras and yeah so it's pretty simple really
0: can can residents get in
3: yes residents can get in and out yes Yes. And um, yeah, I was speaking to, well, I was speaking to someone from Sustrans about this. We're going to have her, um, we're going to play her in a bit. But she was saying that residents actually really like it when it's happened. So um, yeah, I think it just makes their street a bit a bit nicer.
1: What kind of, um, when they've been implemented, Laura, perhaps I'm asking you something you, you, you maybe won't be able to answer and I don't want to put you put you on the spot here, but when they've been implemented, at what distance is this cordon from the school? Because I'm trying to imagine the primary school my kids went to a yonks ago. Um, and actually I'm kind of thinking, well, if you put some temporary, if you put an obstacle there and an obstacle there with a hundred meters either side, All I'm imagining is a bunch of SUVs stopping at the barriers and creating a big bottleneck at either end of the road, where they've kind of been blocked off. And that's kind of in my mind's eye how I see it playing out. But I assume it's slightly better thought out than that, or at least I'd like to hope it was.
3: Yeah. So there are resources. There's, um, um, people like Sustrans and Living Streets have done this before. So, um, they can probably advise people on individual streets, but you do have to think about it carefully and it's different depending on the situation, I would think. So it's just about working out where you would have the barrier to prevent that from happening basically. And yeah. And just discouraging people from moving the problem further afield. Um, yeah.
0: I think one of the one of the challenges that there is in people envisaging school streets is the questions like Ned asks, which I think any resident would ask, is like, how does this actually work? Because you answered the residents' question in a very short space of time, but for the amount of noise that you hear, people talking about how road closures will be the end of their civilization as they know it, it's quite a Uh, a simple kind of, well, you know, no, just pop in and be, be, be careful. Um, so I think in terms of, um, what, uh, what Ned's, um, asking is one of those really valid things. And, and I was asked this the other day and I, 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 you know, didn't know the answer to it. Uh, and the answer of, well, it depends doesn't often, uh, doesn't often cut it when you're trying to, to, to explain to people, but it does genuinely depend because, you know, I live in a I live in a rural suburban area at best, um, and there is only really one street outside my kids' school, um, and it's actually an a it's an it's it's an actually an a road. It's not really an a road, but um, by by nature, um, but it's designated one. So you get a lot of through traffic, and and you know, it would be. I think even as a campaigner and advocate, I would think. Gosh, that would be difficult to run a school street there, wouldn't it? Whereas on Ned Street or in in a uh, uh, London Borough, where I imagine, yeah, you know, inner cities as well in Birmingham and Manchester and Leeds, you know, there are going to be people who, uh, on average, uh, you know, travelling 400 meters to school or 800 meters um, to school. Looking at the stats that are available um, in the 2014 National Travel Survey in England by the Department for Transport. They calculated that the average journey to a primary school across the whole of the uh, whole of England uh, was 1.6 miles, um, which they calculated as a uh, as a 13 uh, minute uh, walk. Uh, But when it comes to uh, age ride.
1: yes, yeah, I was going to say it's a pretty Uh, rapid walking pace that you've got there. Turn
3: to the speed walking championships. You say you weren't very good at cycling. Maybe speed walking is your thing, Adam.
0: It genuinely had a. uh, had an icon of a walker there. Maybe we uh, genuinely, oh, maybe it's just like bouncy bounce way. Like the boomerang Uh, thing. Exactly.
1: Yeah. The bounce way.
0: way. Yeah. Um, (laughs) The, uh, the, no, the, I can see what mistake I've made now. The icon is of a child walking. What they mean is just the average length and time it takes for um, children to get to school. So for primary school children, it's 13 minutes. Um, length uh, and the distance is one point six miles for secondary school children. It's a twenty-five minute um, uh, time uh, and three point three point four miles length, um, which is which is interesting in itself. But it will depend where we are um, in in the in the country. But for a lot of people, um, it seems like a you know a, a really a really good uh, good option that takes out as you say. I don't think anyone really enjoys a school run, and there are a hell of a lot of trips associated with it. Um, I think Chris Boardman talks about, you know, not all school journeys, but he talks about 250 million journeys in Greater Manchester being under one kilometre. Um, and Will Norman, the Cycling and Walking Commissioner for London, uh, reckons there's about 250,000 cut vehicle movements in re- relating to the school run at, at drop-off or uh, or pick up uh, in London. So this is a this is the kind of uh, this is kind of traffic that if it wasn't there, then you know it would be like it would be like well, as people say, it'd be like driving in the school holidays every day because that's how much uh, is associated with the the school run.
3: Yeah, and there are some quite good stats actually. We were talking just now about um, people's perceptions of um, traffic displacements or, or worries about traffic displacements. That Edinburgh did quite a few school streets. Well, they did nine at first over eighteen months quite a few years ago maybe t- 2014 and um, they found that people's perceptions of traffic displacement um, it wasn't as bad as they thought it would be basically so one good thing about doing these school streets and trialing them is that you get to see in your area if it works and um and whether whether you like it and generally they get really good response from local people there was one in Southampton they did for a day recently and um, they found that 72 percent Percent of people who usually drove to school with their children felt that the street was more enjoyable after the school streets. Sixty-six um, percent people uh, agreed the surrounding streets were less congested, and ninety-three percent supported a street closure happening more regularly outside the school. I think Sustrans did one about forty schools last year, and they found about ninety percent of people supported it. And so, once it's in, even though it's hard to imagine before, I think once it's in, the, the level of support you get is is huge and um yeah like you say and the distances people are travelling it does make it possible to cycle and walk and if the place outside the school is nicer when you get there then it just makes it much more attractive
0: yeah i'm really hoping that the government central government really put on the the pressure to local authorities cuz looking at the list in uh in the uk um of the amount of school streets it really is what we can only describe as a kind of postcode lottery um you know in england there is six in birmingham three in solihull two in southampton and two in bristol and that's it five in cardiff uh one in care Philly, um and uh in scotland we have nine in edinburgh six in glasgow four in East Lothian, and a few others ones and twos dotted around um scotland so it's not uh, it's not a lot and and i think each council has a different uh, approach and that you know but it should be said that they can trial things um peculiarly where i live in warwickshire our council is said to be exploring school streets but they've not put it forward yet as a measure unlike the other temporary kind of covid measures that they've that, you know they said oh we'll do that afterwards despite uh, kids going back to school. My kids started going back to school, um, this, uh, this week they're in, they're in year one. Uh, and I guess what gives me not very much hope where I live, um, is we've recently had some school, um, some school safety improvements, uh, where my kids school is, it's a 20 mile an hour limit uh, and sort of a 30, um, which cars were recorded in sort of 50, uh, in that zone. Um, and yeah, and, um, they have put a chicane in like a giveaway to slow vehicles down. They've removed some of the parking and they removed some of the parking on one side of the road, uh, and put yellow zigzags. And then on the other side of the road, they put bollards and extended the pavement out and then put bollards on the pavement. So the parents couldn't park on the pavement. And, uh, I went, went along the other day and, uh, went along the other day and just saw, um, Loads of bollards removed. There, the bollards are gone. They'd been in there for about a month. So um, bollards? And, are we talking? Uh, they're, well, they're just there. There's probably like eight to ten bollards there, and they're they've like been putting
3: bollards. A, Has someone got yeah, like like a Popper. digger?
0: No. Well, the council. So, I, oh, I, I, I see. To, I <laughs> the I'm the just council. imagining
3: some guerrilla action by some parents there, yeah. like a jackhammer yeah, or something, going like,
0: against for parking. Um, no. Uh, and I spoke to council and they were like, yeah, we've had a complaint from a resident. And I said, what? Uh, and they'd removed this, you know, what is a big part of the school safety scheme, um, because one resident didn't like the look of the bollards, uh, which doesn't give me much hope. So my job for this week is to, uh, try and get his bollards reinstated.
1: Gosh, that Mm. that reminds me a little bit of that whole, um, business with the cycling cafe that they tried to close down. Do you remember that, that mm. in, um, in Berkshire or wherever it was that Chris Boardman and a number of people got involved in saving and it? In the end, it all boiled down to one resident complaining, didn't it? And they it could is. sacrifice yeah. some bloke's livelihood just on the whim of some, uh, uh, yeah, whatever.
3: Well, um, one thing I did, one thing I did um, want to add that, because a load of, um, a load of the funding that's coming from government to london boroughs was announced recently and i noticed that a few of those funds are going to what look like school streets so um it's a good sign from government there i think that well, you know or from from transport for london
1: yeah, yeah. kind of i wouldn't mind oh, i wouldn't mind these boroughs getting on with it a bit <laughs> i mean i know that, that I know, you know i have i have so... huge sympathy for local governments they're under enormous pressure and all sorts of you know, it must be it must be the hardest place to be operating at governmental level right now, I think. They're being crunched by everybody. But um yeah. but really, really it does feel like I mean, how long have we been doing this podcast? This is our seventh episode. And we dived straight into this kind of like excited desire to see a transformational change on our streets now, sensing that the opportunity was now. And traffic levels outside my window are back to normal. I mean, it feels like they yeah, just same. back to normal. And it feels like the window's shut. And I've seen nothing outside my front door from my council. Nothing in terms of infrastructure. It's been months. So I'm, I'm a little bit down on it all. So if they've been given money for um, for these uh, uh, um, school streets, just do it. Get it in there. Just get it going. It's yeah. so frustrating. Stick
3: some cones. Yeah, stick some cones in. Stick some cones um, in. Another thing the government could do um, that um, we were talking about with Alice Swift from Sustran. She was saying that in London, the school streets can be um, monitored by, by ANPR, by the automatic number plate recognition. But outside of London, it can only be by police. So that so by giving councils the power outside of London to do that, then it makes it a lot easier. So that's one thing they can do. So welcome to the podcast, Alice Swift, who is Sustran's School Streets Coordinator. Thanks for coming on, Alice. Thank you very much for having me. So Alice, you work with schools on um, creating school streets. Can you just start by telling us what, what they are in normal times and during the COVID crisis?
4: Yeah, so school streets are a really simple concept and they tackle a problem that we all see in all of our neighborhoods, a pattern that we see right across the UK of really car dominated streets around schools. Um, and particularly at those pressure points of the day at the drop off and pickup times where you see lots of vehicles converging on quite a small space all at the same time. And all of the problems that go with that, where you see pavement parking, idling car engines, quite dangerous maneuvers often when cars are trying to get in and out of a tight space and, All of the while, maybe 300 or more small people trying to negotiate their way safely into the school entrance. Um, So school streets, quite simply, are a timed traffic restriction. Um, Typically for 45 minutes to an hour at the start and end of the school day, the road becomes uh, pedestrian and cycling um zone so only. So no through traffic can pass through and parents can't drive in um, to drop off their kids or pick them up. It's it's important to say they're not they're not a new idea. They've been around in Europe for over 10 years and probably over the last sort of four years in the UK, more local authorities have been trying them out. And, and at Sustrans for the past couple of years, we've been working really hard to normalise school streets to to, to trial them outside schools that we're working with and just to demonstrate the benefits. I suppose before, normally, they were already a really good idea. And now in this crisis that we find ourselves in, where um, schools are going to be reopening, more pupils going back, and we've got to keep social distance, they're just doubly, triply important.
3: So there's some, there's some that are in existence already and that had been rolled out cities like edinburgh and i think you mentioned solihull we had a chat the other day about this um i've had them for a couple of mm. years but for some places they're new and the government specifically has said that schools should be looking to create these school streets so does the does the impetus come from the schools themselves or
4: yeah i mean as you said, there's, um, there's quite a number of school streets in existence across the UK. There's about, about 130 at the moment, of which just over 80 are in London. Um, so there's definitely a greater precedence in London for school streets. But, um, but in Scotland, um, you know, Edinburgh was one of the first local authorities to trial them in the UK. Glasgow have got school streets. Um, in England, Birmingham, Solihull, Southampton are trialling them. Leeds have just put some in, in fact, um, like this week. And Cardiff in Wales. Um, And then, yeah, an increasing number of London boroughs have got them. The impetus, um, they're really a joint, they're a joint process between school and local authority. Um, You've got to have strong political leadership for them. So in that sense, impetus comes from stakeholders, from local councillors, from the council. Um, But they can only make school streets work where you've got that support from the head teacher and the, the school community,
3: and so if someone wanted a school street in their school, if you're a parent or maybe a teacher or maybe even a local councillor, how how do you go about having a school street in your
4: area in your school? Mm, I mean, you just said that you know the, the UK government has mandated; they've said to local authorities, you know, you should be putting in school streets wherever possible, which which has really changed the dialogue, and and it's so exciting. But I think it's also important to realize like these are really dizzying times. There's so much guidance coming out every day. I don't feel like I have enough hours in a day to read it. And local authorities are under so much pressure. So I think number one is to realize that a local authority isn't going to be able to put in a school street right now outside every school in a district. It, it's not realistic. But there's a real uh, obligation coming from government to them to do so. And um, they're going to have to prioritize. And so the first step. So if you're a teacher or a parent is to speak to your local counsellor, they've got a lot of power and to really explain to them, they might not know. Even in London, where school streets are really common, your local counsellor might not know what a school street is what the benefits are to sort of speak to them in a language they can understand. Show them a video, um, if you can. Take take uh, you know your local decision maker to see a school street in action to let let them really experience what it feels like to see the street without traffic, to hear children's voices. A bit like we've experienced in lockdown. That's what you see on a school street, and getting your local decision maker to understand that um, is the first step. And then, if you're a parent, also speaking to your head teacher, speaking to other parents. Because when a local authority is prioritising, they'll be looking at lots of things like road layout. But seeing that there's a, like a groundswell of support from the school will really put you in a good place to, to trial. Hmm. And so
3: physically, there's you just put in a sort of barrier twice a day to stop people from driving in and out.
4: Is Is it as simple as that? <laughs> it can be as simple as that. School streets all look a bit different. Each school's a bit different, has its own individual problems. And so the solution looks a bit different, but school streets are generally put in with an experimental traffic regulation order, which means for 18 months, it's trialed and the local authority will consult um, local residents and the school community during that time before making it permanent. At its most basic, a school street will have a big sign at each entrance to the, the street at either end that says school streets. Um, and we'll say the hours when, um, the pedestrian and cycling zone is in operation. So if you're a road user, you know, I can't drive in at this time. Um, where it varies then is, um, some councils will also put in like a physical restriction. So they'll put in bollards that the school caretaker has got keys to that can put up at the beginning of the 45 minute period and put them back down. So it physically stops cars driving in. And then there's a slight difference between London and the rest of the country, the rest of England, and in fact, Scotland as well. That in London, um, the council has the power to enforce the school street. So often they'll have ANPR cameras, so automatic number plate uh, recognition cameras. Outside London, um, it's the police that have the power to enforce.
3: And I guess the temporary nature of these things and the fact that people can decide with them in place it's quite helpful because it can be hard for people to understand, you know, they see all these parents or they're one of the parents driving their kids to school in the morning. Um, They're quite stressed. They've got to get to work afterwards. There's like so much traffic and they're just like, you know, maybe don't aren't thinking properly. And they just think, you know, how else can we do if I have to walk or cycle, it's going to take so much longer, but I guess
4: it, having a temporary measure like that helps people to maybe see that it is possible? Definitely. I mean, at Sustrans, we'd always advocate trial, trial these things, let people experience and then um, get feedback, ask people what they think of it. Is this working for you? Because then you're going to work out why a scheme is going to be successful or not. And so right now in this COVID crisis where councils are being asked to put in emergency temporary things, this is the perfect opportunity to to trial something. And last year at Sustrans, we trialed outside 40 schools uh, for one day or some places for a week or two weeks, like a mini school streets trial, closing the road at the beginning and end of the school day. And we spoke to about a thousand, nearly a thousand parents and local residents, and 90% were in support of more regular closures outside the school, which... I think was higher than anticipated by a lot of councils. Um, but the reality is when you show people the benefits, parents can see that they're not having to grab their child's hand. Um, they can get their buggy down the pavement because there's not cars mounting the grass verge. And residents you know, said things like, for the first time, I didn't feel like a prisoner in or out of my, my home. or it was, it was lovely to see children in the street yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? because, um,
3: I think I think without having seen it, a lot of people might think the opposite. they, they might think, oh, the road's being closed and in inverted comments, I'm going to be a prisoner in my home. People say that about um street closures sometimes,
4: exactly. And Southampton, in fact, is very careful to talk about street openings. They don't like mm. to say street closures. They say, mm-hmm. you know, we're opening the streets to people and closing it to cars.
3: And I guess finally that that these things can act as a bit of a, an eye opener for people who maybe haven't thought about road space reallocation before they can see it in practice and maybe understand a bit better what it looks
4: like in their local areas, their local neighborhoods. Certainly. I think, um, certainly in London, um, but beginning elsewhere, councils are seeing school streets as yeah, a test bed for wider low traffic neighborhoods. Um, Thanks Alice.
1: Thanks for coming on.
4: Yeah. It's been good to speak to you and I look forward to listening to the rest of the podcasts.
1: Uh, That's a really interesting interview, Laura. I like what she said. I like the sounds of it, sort of putting a bit of flesh on the bones of what we've been talking about how these um, school streets. should end up looking uh you know we need to we need like I said just before the interview my frustration seems to grow the more i hear about the plans the more i want to see them enacted um but what i do the kind of what i really wanted to pick up on is the differentiation between school school streets and play streets so play streets i think are uh, potentially even more revolutionary and and a, and a terrific idea because as i indicated right at the beginning of this podcast i think play streets have been informally happening you know um, and it's kind of putting that into giving that some sort of concrete legitimized shape, uh, sounds like a, a superb idea. What, what's your understanding of what play streets are, Laura?
3: Yeah. So I think, well, play streets tend to come from residents rather than from the school or from the council. Um, but I think if we're going to have them on a wider scale, so it's, a, it's the same idea. Basically you have, um, usually volunteers with uh, high vis and Bola and cones Standing at either end of the road. And you might do it once a month or once every couple of months. Do the volunteers have to wear
1: a helmet, Laura?
3: Um, <laughs> you, no, mentioned you, high, you mentioned high vis. I mean,
1: Normally you have to wear a helmet yeah, but, if you've got high vis on as well.
3: That's what. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's what, um, that's what the, uh, Alice Ferguson from, from playing out was telling me that they tend to wear high vis. I guess then you look official and drivers, drivers will listen to you and turn you can around
0: do anything in high vis,
3: You can actually, you can get away with all sorts. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can move street furniture. So, um, Yeah. So basically you stand on either end of the street and then it's, it's whatever the, uh, the residents want. So it could be, um, hopscotch and chalking, or it could be, um, riding bikes and scooting. And obviously things are going to look different now, but I think, um, I think there is a lot of potential for people to see their own street looking quieter and having space to play out. And one thing is really important is, is that it with a school you get different demographics there and you get people who may not have thought about this or have been involved in any way coming in and seeing something that they may not have they may not have considered and think oh well actually this isn't so bad on a street it's more about it might have been more led by the residents but it also would tend to be in an area where people are confident enough and have the time and resources to be able to implement this so um yeah I think I think more more places need them and not just the sort of wealthy ones with the confident people who, who can implement them.
0: So. Yeah. I think that's one of the things, isn't it? That that they require quite a lot of um, resident action and um, you know, it's something I take for granted because of um, the work that I do and I'm, you know, writing letters to my MP to moan and things like that. And, and uh, that's all kind of normal, but you know, I've tried been trying to get some local friends behind uh, some some temporary sort of cycling measures and they've been writing to the council, you know, to say they support it. And it's the first time they've ever written to to a council about, about anything. So I think what what um what the kind of organizations that are helping people like playing out and living streets to to do play streets uh, are really kind of giving them a toolkit so that anyone can do it. And I think there's a couple of uh couple of really nice things that I've seen Uh, during lockdown, not in play streets, but um, in kind of, you know, as Ned says, chalk has seen a resurgence. I should probably check my Google trends data, probably show that chalk is 300% (laughs) up, but um, chalk, uh, chalk is a thing. uh, And my, my, my front front of my house is covered in chalk at the moment, my kids. Um, And the, I saw in my local park, you know, like a big, it's got a long, like one kilometer kind of, uh, uh no cycling area which uh is another story um but someone has, someone has gone through and chalked the whole thing and said like hopscotch clap five times do a dance you know i saw something on twitter about a community kind of creating a ministry of silly walks where they had to pass a sign and 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 just mess about and i think really like what it shows is um all the all these the silver linings that we've seen from covid is that you know, we've we we uh, we've been re-exploring and rediscovering our communities. Um, but I think also what we need to consider, and what you said, Laura, that sometimes play streets and school streets can be the start of low-traffic neighbourhoods. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, if if the council would proactively encourage people to do play streets rather than waiting for people to put their hand up and, you know, more of our streets had planters and more streets had parklets, wouldn't all this stuff happen so much more naturally?
1: Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth, Adam. I mean, as much as I... Except that uh, without the buy-in, the active buy-in of the residents, uh, none of this is going to be too effective. On the other hand, um, you can, you you know, that you can switch the cart and the horse around a bit, and I think the councils can be proactive in terms of encouraging this. So one of the things that they could do very simply, I think, is we are still. If I think of the um, local authority housing around where I live, um, where where there's a lot, there's a lot of um, local authority kind of patchily spread around the borough. um, uh, they are the way that they present themselves to the outside world quite often is, I think, still the legacy of the 1960s, and 1970s. So we have a predominance of signs up on the side of walls in local authority housing that say things like, um, "No ball games." you know? Yes. And, 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 um, I don't know why they still say, that. I think that it harks right back. I mean, you can actually see it in the type font. Those signs have been on the wall for a long time. And I think it harks back to an era where town planners were kowtowing to the all powerful motor car and just, you know, and, and also to this kind of notion of pesky teenagers and, you know, making noise out in the street and all this sort of thing. And I think they need to spin that paradigm around and actually say ball games, you know, um uh, um this is your space use it and 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 get the grass mown and make sure that it's appropriate to be used and you know open it all up again and actively welcome that kind of uh, approach to living in your neighborhood and I think that that's something that they could do quite simply and quite cost effectively, but it requires a change in their in their thinking on this sort of thing and I think you'd get buy-in from the residents on that, especially if you were if you know if you're trying to raise a young family you after you know, in, in 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 these flats without a garden of your own after three months of lockdown, you know, you want to be able to take advantage of your open space in your area outside your front door.
3: So Alice Ferguson is co-director of Playing Out, which is a small but highly effective organisation that facilitates and supports play streets around the UK. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Alice. you for having me. Um, can you tell us a bit about what you do at Playing Out?
2: Yeah, so the whole thing started uh, on my own street about 11 years ago, um, when my neighbor and I came up with the idea of closing our street cars so that children could play out in the street. Um, And we managed to get the council to put a policy in place to support that model um, that's totally resident led. So it's all organized by neighbors, um, people just coming together to close the road to through traffic for a couple of hours, maybe once a week or once a month. Um, and we then sort of realized that there was a strong appetite amongst parents to do this and to kind of start changing things and giving children back some freedom to play out like we all experienced as children so we're playing out as an organization to support other parents to do this on their own streets and we've ended up supporting also um, a lot of councils to put these policies in place so that's kind of what we do but we've got a bigger longer term aim really to to change the culture around children being able to play out and have more freedom where they live wow um and so were were people were people doing this when you started? No, so we started actually on my street by having street parties. So the street party idea definitely existed and um there was there was a council policy that let you have a street party once a year, but the idea of having a regular short closure that was just about making the space safe so that children could play out freely. So not an event, not, not like a one-off special thing with food and bunting. That was new, um, in this country anyway. So in America, in, in New York, they did have play streets, um, kind of going back. And actually in this country, there, there were play streets from about the 1930s, but it was a slightly different thing. They were more, um, of a permanent kind of, council led idea where the street would be closed to cars all day, um every day sometimes. So yeah. Uh-huh. As a as a sort of resident led temporary model, I think what we were doing was something a bit different. Mm, that's amazing. I had no idea it was
3: happening back in the 30s and there's like almost no cars on the road. That's incredible.
2: Yeah, I mean it's really interesting history actually. There's um an academic's written a Really good paper about it. Um, and how actually, even then, the Play Streets movement was quite led by mothers campaigning for children's right to use that space, but kind of coming from the point of view of, well, our children do play out there. It's their space, you know, it's it's our space and seeing cars starting to come in and kind of take over that space and make it less safe and, you know, actual accidents involving children kind of massively increased. So it was partly kind of coming from the same place but at a very different time, if you see what I mean. And and now we're kind of in the opposite
3: situation where we just take for granted that cars and drivers just come through our residential streets and that it's not really safe for anyone to linger in the in the roadway anymore. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Is- so it's quite like- yeah, it's quite hard because, you know, we're sort of pushing back against the status quo now. Um, and that does cause, you know, sometimes conflict and, you know, people not, not liking the idea. They don't want things to change, but actually I'd say on, on the whole, people do support it and do like it and do want it. And I think what we've all experienced during lockdown with much, less traffic on the streets has been that most people have actually quite enjoyed that aspect of it. So it's kind of shown um, that people do do want that, you know, even if you also want to be able to drive your car. And, you know, people actually like the idea of using streets in a different way.
3: Yeah, obviously there's the sort of push-pull between um, the need for outdoor space yeah. and then the issues we have around people needing to be socially distanced and wondering what, you're, what play, playing out has come up with any um, potential solution.
2: Yeah, so where we are at the moment in terms of play streets is that the, the basic mechanism of the play street could actually be quite easily used right now um, with... Sort of just creating that space on a street to allow people to come out and use it, but with social distancing um, consideration, so it might be that um, it 's not so much about children just being able to completely free play as they would normally on a play street for the time being. But obviously, we really hope that that would be possible as soon as possible because that's the really valuable thing about play streets and that's the thing that children really need more than anything is just that that freedom and unstructured play but for the time being I think the the process of being able to apply to your council and close the road for a period of time um, and to for the community to be able to use that space could actually work Perfectly well, because in a way, it's just another public space, the same as a park or, you know, another space that is car free. Um, and within that, people would obviously still have to follow the guidelines and take responsibility. So, um, we're already seeing some councils actually, um, sort of using that mechanism, but just slightly renaming it to have a different emphasis that's, not so much about children and play, um although hopefully we'd still incorporate that. Um so one council's thinking about using the term quiet streets that we've heard of. Um, and we also really like the idea of just calling them community streets, for example. And maybe that, you know, that could incorporate things like organised dancing on the street or slightly more structured games and activities. We've made a page on our website, actually, where we're sort of trying to gather in ideas about how that space could be used. What does a a sort of modern play street look like? I mean, modern as in COVID times. So, well, we haven't physically seen one yet, I don't think. But um, in theory, I think it would look like you'd still have neighbours at each end of the street, probably wearing high vis, standing two meters apart from each other, with a road closed sign and cones to just stop the the through traffic. Um, and whatever happens in that space, you know, it, we we can't kind of uh, prescribe that. I think that's got to be up to neighbours and residents to work out for themselves but you know we've already seen even on streets um that haven't been closed to cars during lockdown just children using that space quite playfully um for cycling or scooting or hopscotch or chalking you know with with distancing so i think all of that is possible it's just um yeah it's just about giving people the chance to to kind of take over that space and um and come out, and it, you know there are lots of ways actually that play streets fit really well, or that model fits really well with right now because we've all during lockdown we've seen such a kind of increase in community spirit and people kind of getting to know their neighbours online or via WhatsApp groups. So it's a way of um, starting to sort of physically come out and meet each other in a in a safe way. Um and also I suppose on the flip side, children have really suffered during lockdown um, in lots of ways, and you know, particularly children where they don't have access to gardens or private outside space. Um, and there's a lot of concern amongst child psychologists and mental health experts about what impact that has had or will ha- you know will be shown to have had on children um because the sort of the desire to play and play with other children is so intrinsic to children and so so important um that it's you know it's a bit concerning that they've they've had so long without that um and they're just going to they're going to need that more than more than ever as well as the sort of physical aspect and just having some space to to move and let off steam, which is you know also very important for children and for parents <laughs> to, for their children to be able to do that. I was <laughs> <it>. just going to say we also think um, this kind of temporary resident-led play street idea could be a good bridge towards some of the longer term changes that you know lots of us are kind of talking about and thinking about and even the government is now kind of getting behind to a certain extent you know calling on local authorities to alter the status quo on the roads it's you know it's really quite a radical change um and uh yeah and and play streets can be a way of just showing people what's possible and building up that support for some of the more permanent physical changes that that are being talked about. It's also about kind of just changing the culture, I think, about streets and moving away from just seeing, you know just seeing roads as being the cars and recognizing the the potential and the value that they can have also for you know for communities and particularly for children because it's the space right on their doorstep so yeah i think there are a lot of positive reasons for for play streets kind of fitting right now as well
0: i think the thing uh that i most latch onto is just how grassroots the playing out movement is it's so nice to kind of hear that um it really came from them wanting to do their own street and then you know providing the tools um to do that and you know l- quite um yeah, quite clear that it's kind of a, um, a family, a sort of a, a parent movement. Um, and I think the other, the, the, the other thing is that, um, I, through the data I was looking at earlier, um, it's maybe not such a surprise, but, um, uh, between the ages of 13 and 50 over the whole country, uh, women take more the trips than than men, uh, and the most notable difference for that is what's described as, um, you know, escort education. So mostly taking children to to to, to school, um, and I think that links in a little bit because uh, this is this is a very much a different podcast. So I I, I won't go into this in total details, but you know, I've been starting to look at things like in the Netherlands, you'll you know have a higher likelihood of cycling. As a woman and that likelihood increases as you get older uh and here in uh in britain that's uh well it's i don't got the data for it but i imagine it's definitely the opposite um so so i think that's interesting in terms of um again mobility generally across um uh, across different um uh different genders um you know and uh, whatnot so I think I think that's a really interesting thing that that this is something that could really benefit those who might be stuck in some form of you know car dependency or just even just making people's lives a bit easier by giving their children somewhere to be so that they're not constantly well I've had it during lockdown just constantly in your ear. <laughs> um that sounded, that sounded like I, I, I don't like my children it i do like my like children but i am but they've gone back to school yeah. um and it's easier now
1: um i don't know how much of this podcast we've got left but i suspect we're coming to the end um it's gonna be long yeah, it's gonna be long. yeah. um i've got i've got a couple of little bits of any other business to fling your you way sure. specifically, it's,
0: these podcasts are coming increasingly like uh, like AGMs or something. Or yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Keep it formal. Um, uh, no, they're just really an answer. Well, one is I wondered whether you had an answer to a question that kind of has been perplexing me slightly, and I, um, I saw some, I saw a, a Twitter or two about it in Hammersmith as well. These planters, Laura, these heavy old planters, there's a little street that, that you know, you can, you call them modal filters, don't you? You can block off a road to motorised traffic. Um, there's a street yeah. in Hammersmith that, where appears that, that motorists don't like him much. So they've just been moving them to one side uh-huh. and then they get moved back and then they move to one side and they get moved back. And now the council, I think it's Hammersmith council has uh, decided to just screw them to the ground. <laughs> um, yeah. Good. <laughs> d- d- well, yes, good, but I'm still perplexed by emergency access and how you get, how you actually, cause they're not barriers you can just lift up by unlocking. I don't quite get that. Do you know the answer to that? I mean, are they, how can they do that? Because that seems to me, I don't know. You know what I'm getting at, don't you?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're guessing at. Well, I think they, so when you do them, when a council does them, they have to talk to the emergency services and make sure that they can, they know that it's there and they can go in and then reverse out, presumably, and then go in from the other end and reverse right, out. right Also, um, I think that was, was that like a, was that a residential street? I saw a picture of it. It
0: looked like a cut through through a, through a bridge. Under,
3: yeah. under a railway yeah. arches. Like a railway under yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know the street, but um, I know that another one you can do is where you have, um, a thing where there's a like a bollard that flips up and down that there's got a there's got like a key or there's bollards you can drive over um
0: yeah. i think there's two things to, to two things that i just should well, i think that maybe people can't get their heads around one is that modal filters still almost always allow access um it just means the thing that people need to get their head around and which is why you know they're not always straightforward is that Residents will have to, in some cases, go the long way around, or what they feel is the long way around, because they've always been going another way around. But I guess it, which, whichever way you look at it, it might it might turn out that you're actually going a shorter way around because you start to visit different areas of your neighbourhood by by foot, where you completely shunned them before because you were always turning right out of your drive to go to go somewhere by habit, um, and then. So, secondly, is also emergency services, um, especially in urban areas. I think there are people that are concerned that things like modal filters will make it harder for emergency services. But I'll tell you what makes it really hard for emergency services, and that's lots of traffic queued up. Um, so, having as long as people know in advance, which that's why they're consulted, um, that they have to go, you know, a different way to get to that access point, and it's updated in there. In their systems, which is how I believe it works, um, then that's better than the alternative, which I guess is lots of narrow roads with lots of cars backed up trying to get onto the curb to allow a fire engine through. Well, that is a, an that is very
1: considered and detailed and fulsome answer, Adam, to a a really really rather stupid question of mine. Um, The other question I had actually came from uh, um, someone on Twitter who asked me about saying, listen, I'd really like, I like cycling. I like cycling into work. I think he works in London, Um, but I'm really hesitant to do it because there's not enough provision for, I can't lock it up. There's not enough places." And, you know, anyone who's ever ridden into Soho w- would absolutely know that's true. You, there's nowhere to lock your bike up in Soho. You end up kind of like, you know, improvising wildly and sort of chaining it to people's drain pipes on the third floor or something. Yeah. Some. Um, you
3: need, yeah, so, you so, you need so, to leave 10 minutes extra to find a parking yeah, space Yeah. So with yeah.
1: The, Which is one of the great joys of cycling, isn't it? Not having to find a parking space. <laughs> so, so is there, as far as you know, um, Laura, have TFL or the boroughs been thinking about how to provide this extra capacity?
3: Well, one of the new bits of funding is going to a train station, and I would hope that it's going to include some cycle parking, but they definitely need to start thinking about this. And I know that some councils are as part of their measures, because obviously, with more people cycling, you're going to need more um, secure bike parking. Um, So yeah, I would hope that they are. And at this stage, people are putting in to government saying that they want the money. Um, but they haven't given, all of them haven't given details of what they're going to use that for. But I, I would say that cycle parking is super important because that, that's, um, that's an easy way of like removing a barrier to people cycling. Um,
0: I'd, I'd encourage people who, who, um, in, that includes employers, that includes, you know, head teachers and, uh, people, business owners and anyone in the community to, um, Dig just a little we don't make it easy for people, but just dig a little bit deeper on on cycle parking um British cycling have a, um have a funding stream called places to ride which is um, supported by central government uh, I think it's yeah making use of a 15 million pound investment and basically the the approval process for that is that you need to show that you're encouraging Cycling in your community, and guess what? Bike parkings are a, a big part of that. Yes, you've got to fill in a form, and yes, you've got to find a non-profit charity to for the money to go to. Um, but it's but it's uh, it's totally possible. And where I live, the West Midlands Combined Authority are doing a similar scheme um, with uh, you know offering free bike uh, stands to uh, businesses, schools, organisations anywhere in the West Midlands. Uh, all they need to do is uh, uh, apply for it.
3: And another great thing about bike parking is we were talking about pavement parking earlier. In my borough, they've used bike racks um, along the pavement to stop people from uh, leaving their cars there. And they've got some quite good ones actually. They've got one that's like a planter; it's a tall planter with a bike rack, like five bike racks coming out the back of it. So
1: very good. Double. I, I was wondering if I could finish off just by reading a very short extract from a book I wrote that that's, that, that pertains to this. Um, yeah. In. So called On the Road Bike. And I think it came out in about 2012, 2013. And one of the- chat- I've got that book. Have you? One of the- so thank sorry. you. Oh, yeah, I love that book. Well, oh, th- thank you, Laura. Um, one, of the people, one of the people I interviewed in the book was Ken Livingston. Uh, think what you like about Ken Livingston. That's neither here nor there. But he did, as well as Boris Johnson as mayor, have an impact on cycling in London when he was the London mayor. Um, he bought the Tour de France in 2007 to London, which was obviously the reason why I went to kind of speak to him, you know, about the impact that had and all this sort of thing. He was actually during his election campaign where he was trying to um, get his job back from Boris Johnson that I spoke to him. And um, so I, I asked him finally, right towards the end of this chapter, I say this, I have one more question to ask him. And even if I, even as I ask it, I think I know what the answer is going to be. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking the Tour de France what is your proudest contribution to cycling in London? Ken Livingston thinks long and hard about this. And then he answers, transparent bike sheds. I start scribbling notes. (laughs) We wanted kids to start cycling. So we worked with schools. The real problem is you've got to have somewhere to put the bikes. So we offered schools bike sheds, but there was real resistance from them because they imagined everyone getting pregnant behind the bike sheds or doing drugs (laughs) because that's where the teachers all got laid when they were at school, you know? People who now were teachers had their first sexual encounters behind the bike sheds when they were at school. So they weren't having the old style bike sheds. So we actually built bike sheds that were transparent. Spoiling everyone's fun? Yeah, yeah. But that's my favourite story about cycling over eight years. There you go. Seems a funny way to end the podcast, but maybe we should end with Ken Livingston on this particular episode. (laughs)
0: Love it. Love it. On on that note, um, I want to let you know that you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Uh, let us know uh, what you think. Um, we're at Pod Streets Ahead on Twitter. If you know any other people that would like this podcast, then please do share it with them. Uh, it really helps us. Um, and wherever you're listening, please do rate and review the podcast. It means more people find us. Until next time.
1: Bye. Bye. Very smooth, folks. Very smooth.